This episode of Asia Rising has been recorded in front of a live virtual audience via Zoom. To find out about upcoming similar events in which you can watch and ask your own questions at the end, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The Chinese government is building the world's largest police-run DNA database in close cooperation with key industry partners across the globe. Yet unlike the managers of other forensic databases, Chinese authorities are deliberately enrolling tens of millions of people who have no history of serious criminal activity. These individuals have no control over how their DNA samples are collected, stored and used, nor do they have a clear understanding of the potential implications of DNA collection for them and their extended families. Here to discuss the implications of this is a returning friend of the pod, Associate Professor James Leibold, Head of the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Good morning to you, James. Nice to be with you again, Matt. Also here with us today is Emile Dirks, PhD candidate in political science at the University of Toronto. Hello to you, Emil. Thank you for having me. Together they co-authored the excellent and concerning report, Genomic Surveillance, which you can read on ASPI.org. Uh, if I can start with you, Emil, and if you could give us a bit of background to this report and what prodded it, uh, how is DNA being taken in China and how extensive is the harvesting? Well, uh, China, like a lot of other countries, collects DNA samples or other forensic material during criminal investigations, much as Australian police, Canadian police, American police do. Um, but what we've come across is a program that began in late 2017, during which time uh, police across China have been collecting DNA samples from men and boys unconnected to any sort of criminal investigation. And not only are they collecting these DNA samples, they're also building a database full of extensive family records that would connect individuals to their extended male family members. Again, this is a program of uh, police-led DNA collection that is completely unconnected to any criminal investigation. And our research suggests that it's been going on for more than two years and seems to be ongoing to this day. And while, um, if I just add to that, um, it's a national program, so uh, initiated by the Ministry of Public Security in Beijing. It's been carried out uh, across China by local police under uh, most likely the directives of the Chinese Communist Party's political and legal committee. And a lot of the data that we brought to bear in this report, we collected from uh, police social media posts about them conducting DNA sample collection uh, in their various regional administrations. And we've estimated that since 2017, the authorities across China have collected samples around 5 to 10% of the country's male population, or roughly 35 to 70 million people. And when you combine that data with existing data in the uh, Chinese government's forensic DNA database, uh, we estimate that could have upwards of uh, 100 million profiles, which would make it the world's largest DNA forensic database in the world. And as Emil said, it uh, continues to grow and we continue to find evidence of this occurring. So how are they going about collecting this? Is it, you know, pull you over, check your license, take a DNA sample? Is it that kind of 
crude level? Are they trying to be extensive with this? Is it under a directive that they're doing this? Well, it seems to be very systematic. What appears to have happened, as James said, is this is a national program and police are being given instructions to first get a sense of the total male population within a given area and then to attempt to create extensive upwards of three, four or five generation genealogical records for men in those areas. And then based on those records, select a subgroup of men from whom to collect DNA samples. I say men, but again, this includes boys. We have evidence that police have gone into even kindergartens to collect samples from, from children. But it's happening fairly openly. We have photographic and video records showing that DNA samples are taking place, not just in schools, but also in the streets, private homes, businesses, cultural centers. And again, it's being done very systematically. And it's being done pretty much the same way across the board, no matter where you are in China. Mm. And was there a legitimate concern that led to this kind of thing happening? What formed the basis of it? From the perspective of the Chinese state, they have provided a range of justifications for this, some related to national census, some related to combating the trafficking of children and missing people. But what it seems to be connected to is the police's desire or the, the Chinese government's desire to both expand their ability to crack criminal cases, but also deepen social control. And as we know in China, there really isn't much of a division between the policing of crime, as we might understand it in Australia or Canada, and the policing of political dissent. So in that sense, the program seems to be part of a larger effort on the part of the Chinese government and the Ministry of Public Security in particular to deepen state control over society. Again, the men who are being targeted are not themselves suspects of criminal investigation, nor are their family members, nor are they believed to be victims of trafficking. Right? These, are, these are ordinary people. Mm. And yet data are being collected presumably in the hopes that in the future, if they or family members become involved in a criminal investigation or engaged in some sort of dissident activity, their genetic information can be collected or linked back to existing records and ease surveillance or repression. I think it's uh, worth adding, Matt, that um, the mass harvesting of DNA uh, really began in the ethnic frontier regions of Tibet starting in 2013 and then extended to Xinjiang in 2016, where uh, it appears that the Chinese police have collected the entire genomic profile of the populations of those two regions. And that, uh, needless to say, requires a tremendous amount of resources. And so what we see in uh, this current campaign is one, an effort to extend it across China, but also to use a far more efficient and targeted method. And so that is through the collection of this YSTR or sort of the, the DNA on the Y chromosome. It's passed down through the family line quite consistently. And so if you combined it, as Emil was saying, with uh, family trees, you can use it not only to identify a kind of a sample back to a surname group, back to a particular region and group of related men. So it's a, it's really cutting edge in terms of forensic DNA uh, fingerprinting. And we really see China at the, uh, at the forefront of this scientifically, as well as in the corporate biomedical sector. I mean, we've seen the implications for this sort of technology with, um, I believe, the Golden State Killer being tracked down in the United States. 
through familial DNA links, I think. So this sort of thing does have implications for policing and that's good justification, but it seems to be quite broader to be going and, and building your own DNA database. So how is this tying in with other examples of surveillance that we know are going on in China? And I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of how thorough they are being with their monitoring. It's not just DNA, and this is going to interact with other areas of surveillance, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, DNA is just one component of what we term a kind of multimodal surveillance regime, really, which, again, you see at its sharpest, perhaps in Xinjiang, where they have collected high-resolution photographs of people uh, to use with facial recognition, collected voice prints. They've collected information on gait, as well as uh, DNA. And so when you feed this together and you link all this biometric data with a individual's ID number, as well as their mobile number, you create a really powerful set of uh, data points that can be used to track, surveil, detain, arrest and harass people at the uh, whim of the police in China. So what is the role of private companies in this? And are there concerns regarding the role of these companies in, in other security systems as well? Well, we know that there are a range of Chinese companies that are involved in creating the or selling to the public security bureaus across the country, selling the DNA collection kits that are being used by the police. And we also know that many of those Chinese companies are also building the database software that is being used to store not only the information contained in those samples, but also the genealogical records. And as James suggested, connect this to a larger surveillance apparatus that extends across the country. We also know that there are international companies, specifically Thermo Fisher, which are involved in this as well, which are selling the equipment that's being used to collect DNA samples. And to give you a sense, I mean, the forensic DNA market in China is massive. It's been estimated to be worth around 1.4 billion US dollars in total. And so inevitably competition is pretty intense. And so in the past, multinational companies really dominated, particularly equipment sales. Uh, but we see that domestic players are really making significant inroads. Some uh, might know that uh, China in its uh, made in China 2025 strategy targeted the biotechnology uh, sector as crucial to the government um, and has provided with all kinds of subsidies. And so what we see is this intense kind of battle between multinational and domestic players to gain market share, but as well to develop cutting edge tools here. Uh, to assist the police in the collection of these samples. And like in any sector where there's competition, we see the theft of intellectual property, Wild West kind of landscape where sometimes the ethical standards aren't really upheld as they should be. So are we seeing uh, implications in the global norms of DNA intelligence? And is there concern given that there are companies interacting with this sort of surveillance and the global markets, that there is going to be crossover of these interests and that there's going to be concerns for other countries as well. Both James and I have written about this. We certainly feel that the issue of genomic surveillance is going to be one of the defining ethical problems of the 21st century. And it's certainly an issue that extends beyond China, and specifically the forcible collection of genomic data by state authorities from often marginalized communities. Of course, we see this in the States, 
with uh, immigration authorities taking genetic samples from immigrants who are kept in detention. And so what we see in China is perhaps a more extreme version of trends or tendencies that we are witnessing, again, not just in the States, but in other countries around the world. What perhaps is most disturbing about the case in China is that in the absence of opposition political parties, a free press, a robust civil society, and an independent judiciary, there really are no institutional or popular forces that can push back against these programs. Mm. You know, it's worth mentioning that Kuwait in the past tried to create a national DNA database in the name of uh, countering terrorism, but it was criticized by the international community at the, at the UN and then uh, withdrew that proposal. But in the wake of what China's doing, it's quite possible. We've looked at some countries that are starting to explore the possibility of creating a national uh, DNA database. Countries like Thailand, Malaysia, India are all kind of contemplating similar programs like that. So what China does really matters. It can shift global norms. And at present, particularly around issues around genomic privacy, there isn't a real clear set of guidelines at a kind of national level. I mean, there have been UN agreements that have been signed, but a lot of the detail around it is quite fuzzy. And what is required, I think, is a pushback by civil society groups, as well as a, a kind of global discussion about where this is acceptable and where it isn't. There are a lot of private companies collecting genomic samples so people can send through the mail copies of their genomic data to be placed in a kind of private database to you know find out connections to try to find lost relatives and uh, police in the past have asked uh, for that data from these private companies and so that is uh, poorly regulated as well so it's both a state challenge as well as a private company challenge as well all right, in a few minutes, I'll be um, asking for questions from the audience. So uh, if you have any questions, please uh, put them in the handy Q&A function down there and I will uh, assess them using my vigorous selection criteria. Uh, but before we get to that point, I, I just have a question about what has the reaction to your report on ASPE been? Is there any reaction from global institutions, shall we say? I, I want to know if these sort of trends are concerning to the world at large and if the needle is going to shift in as far as a reaction? Well, thus far, we haven't seen much of an explicit reaction from Chinese authorities. And my suspicion is that this may be because the authorities are looking to complete the program before admitting that it exists. Again, as I said, there is a lack of independent institutions or popular forces that can really push back against the power of the Chinese state or the police. But this doesn't mean that the Chinese government is insensitive to popular opinion. And as we document in the report, uh, there is evidence taken from online forums that people are skeptical of this program. There are also legal authorities who in the past have criticized similar programs that have been put in place in China. So it is possible that the lack of a response from the Chinese authorities suggests that if they were to be open about this program internationally and domestically, they might experience greater pushback on the part of the public. Because as James said, these programs of genomic surveillance began in areas like Tibet and Xinjiang, heavily policed areas which are ethnic minority dominated. Um, but this is a program that extends across the country. And from our research, it seems that the majority of the people who are being tested are probably Han Chinese. So in that sense, it might hit closer to home 
to a lot of Chinese people who might otherwise be indifferent to the forms of control and surveillance that have been put in place in the westernmost regions of the country. I find their silence quite interesting, given the fact that they're so quick to criticize Aspie or, or really any other researchers who criticize them on human rights issue. The fact that this program has been done not surreptitiously like in uh, Tibet, in Xinjiang, but done at a very local level with the police trying to control the level of information in local jurisdictions. I mean, essentially we were peering in by using uh, Chinese social media accounts to the, you know, the local posts of the public security bureau in a, in a county or a district in an urban area. And these are largely only meant for consumption locally or up the chain. And so it's not like they're publicly talking about that. And as Emil said, I suspect they are worried about pushback. And we can see that in some of their propaganda that they're quite concerned about the potential pushback. And you know, we've, we've encountered some posts on social media of people uh, suggesting they felt uncomfortable doing this. But at the same time, Privacy issues in China are not the same as they are elsewhere. Uh, a lot of people kind of just accept that the party has the ability to collect its data and or the party, as one woman told me, knows everything about me, so why should I worry? But the issues of privacy, particularly amongst middle-class urbanites, is growing. It's important to note that, as Emil said, the campaign of collection is not authorized under Chinese criminal law. It's, it's illegal to take samples from anyone outside of a criminal investigation. Uh, so there are concerns about the legality of it. And China also passed recently at the National People's Congress a new civil code, which explicitly protects biometric data from uh, breaches of privacy. The Chinese government have a right to be concerned here, and I, th I think so they're just kind of keeping their head down to allow officials to complete this program. Mm. Before we wade into uh, some of the questions from the audience, I just have one final request for a comment for you. In the organization of this live podcast event, we did get a couple of emails from prospective attendees voicing their concerns over the use of Zoom and the interactions with that company in China. And I just wanted to get your view before we're mysteriously cut off. I don't feel comfortable speaking on behalf of Latrobe or any other organization, but certainly as an individual, as a concerned citizen and as a researcher, I have really been trying my best over the last few years to learn more about data security, full stop, whether it's related to the use of Chinese technology or, or not. Um, this has included for me using anything from DuckDuckGo, kind of uh, safer search engines like that, uh, trying to disable trackers on the websites that I go to, using ProtonMail um, if I'm sending or receiving sensitive information, um, using VPNs. So I think the, the question around Zoom specifically is, is a challenging one, but I think it should also remind us that when we're thinking about data security, we also need to be concerned about not just Chinese companies, but international or American companies, Canadian companies that are involved in these measures as well. It's worth clarifying, Zoom is an American company. It was you know, founded in California and registered, I think, in Maryland. But I think Emil's larger point is an important one that all of us need to be far more diligent about how we uh, share our data and make sure that we understand where we're leaving traces of ourselves. But, you know, one of the real challenges as well is talking about DuckDuckGo. I mean, it's great. I had it, but, you know, it's so frustrating. You can't find anything. So I'm back on Google. 
I tried to move away from Zoom and try consciously in, in my meetings to use other services. But, you know, the, frankly, Zoom is the best platform out there. It really comes down to that convenience versus privacy. You know, and I think all of us are trying to get that balance uh, right. But it's really important that I think we raise uh, consciousness about this issue. Yeah, all of us kind of explore where that right balance is for ourselves. All right. So we'll go to a, a couple of questions from the audience. And firstly, we will go to a friend of the podcast, Edward. So I'm wondering whether we yet have any indication of whether there are plans to extend this uh, practice of DNA harvesting to Hong Kong under the new security law. It's probably too early to tell, but I don't know if you have your ear to the ground or have heard anything about that. In any event, this might be one litmus test of how far China is willing to go in Hong Kong in terms of transforming the legal context there. We do know, Ed, the Hong Kong police have admitted that they are collecting DNA samples from people who have been detained under suspected breaches of the new national security law. So that's a matter of uh, the public record. Uh, there's been recently, over the last couple of weeks, some speculation about COVID tests being conducted uh, in Hong Kong. You, you, many will know that Hong Kong is experiencing, like Melbourne, a second wave. And the Hong Kong authorities have invited a couple Chinese companies to come in and have offered free COVID tests to all Hong Kong residents. And Joshua Wong and a few others have raised issues of concern that through the collection of these COVID samples, there's a possibility that genomic uh, data might uh, end up back in the PRC and possibly back in a police forensic DNA database. Of course, there's, there's no evidence of that. That's uh, all speculative. But I think you're right. I think there's concerns about, you know, the shifting global norms here. And it is going to kind of be a litmus test um, for a whole range of reasons what's happening in Hong Kong at present. Just to add to that, I think that there's definitely a concern with the open acknowledgement on the part of authorities there that DNA samples are being collected from people who have been detained under the new national security law. In terms of whether this particular program might be expanded to Hong Kong, I would be surprised if it was only because this is a very methodical program that begins first with the collection of extensive family records. And in a sense, it would have to be conducted quite openly. So the preliminary step of just finding out who the men in a community are and how they're related to their extended male family members would already start ringing alarm bells. So at the moment, I think what is more concerning to me is what they've already acknowledged they're doing, which is collecting genomic samples from people who have been arrested under this quite draconian new law. All right. So next question that we'll go to uh, will be from Julie. Hi, how are you? I keep abreast of what's happening in Australia and there were claims about the coronavirus tests and being a link to Australia, being able to collect this sort of data, but at arm's length and not be, I guess, compelled by Australian laws to follow certain protocols. So I don't know whether that was just rumour or, you know, conspiracy theory or whatnot. So I was wondering if you had a comment on that. Uh, but also due to the situation in Australia, how do you address issues of, 
of people who might just claim that you're being, um, I guess, scared or worried about, you know, the historical notion of the yellow peril. And I think the two go together because this is how us as a society and politically agree or disagree with different policies that are implemented here and the relationship that we have internationally. With the issue that's particular to Australia you mentioned, um, unfortunately, I, I haven't looked into that as of yet, so I wouldn't be able to, to comment on that. The other issue you raise about the kind of concerns around the yellow peril, there's definitely a lot of people who are bad faith actors who make criticisms of China um, and Chinese state policy that they'd be unwilling to make of their own state. But I would stand by the work that James and I have done. I mean, again, largely because you look at the data we've collected, you look at the analysis we've made, the results that we've come to, I think, stand independent of whatever motivations he or I might have. So in that sense, whatever our particular motivations for writing this report are, I think we've established a fairly strong case that this is happening in China and needs to be discussed. I'll just say a little bit about Julie's question about what's happening here in Australia to the extent that I understand it. So obviously COVID testing is absolutely crucial for us to get the virus under control here and COVID test kits are in short supply. And so some of you will know that uh, Twiggy Forest collaborated with uh, Beijing Genomic Institute, which is a leading global genomic company based in China, to provide millions of test kits to the Australian government or the local testing sites. It was vetted, the process and the security of the data was uh, vetted by the Australian security forces. They are convinced there's not anything to be worried about here, that BGI will not in any way have control over people's genomic data, and that none of that will end up back in Beijing. I mean, I take them at their word on that, but at the same time, I think it's important that we kind of understand the various aspects of what's involved in having a COVID test done on oneself and what happens to one's data. And, and you know, frankly, I, I don't have all the answers there and I'd, I'd like to have more discussion about that, where that data goes and it, it, is it properly destroyed? Is it properly anonymized? I mean, these are, again, go to those issues that we were talking about before around um, uh, genomic privacy that there's a lot we don't know about it. And just to follow up again with the issue of criticisms of China, I would say as well that I think that James and I have been fairly careful to ensure that whatever criticisms we level against the Chinese state are focused squarely on Chinese authorities and that we're not making any sort of essentialist claims about China or the Chinese people. And I would also say that in a more recent piece that we wrote in op-ed for the New York Times, um, we attempted to connect the research that we've done to similar practices that are happening overseas. And I think that's an important thing that as, as researchers, as public intellectuals, we need to be aware of, which is trying to see how can we place the kinds of abuses that we see in China in a comparative perspective, partly because I think this helps to elaborate or to give us a better sense of what's unique to the Chinese case and what might not be. But also, I think it shows that we're serious about this work and that our motivations are principled, that we're interested in this because we have a deep principled concern about the kind of abuses we're looking at. And this isn't part of a larger campaign or political effort to demonize China or otherwise engage in racist attacks on 
China and the, the Chinese people. All right, we'll take uh, one final question if we can. Hear from Beck now in Melbourne. Hello, Beck. Can you hear us? Yes. Hi, James and Emil. This is a tremendously interesting, although a bit disturbing, uh, discussion uh, around uh, the, the use of DNA uh, to exert state control. So, what I wanted to ask was some of the implications around human rights in Asia more generally. So picking up on what James spoke about, the potential to spread to other states in Asia, this idea that this could be contributing or, or might potentially contribute to a shift in global norms. I assume that, James, you meant around global norms around human rights. Uh, so I'm just uh, wondering whether we can zoom out a little bit and, and, and whether we can discuss a little bit more what's going on in China might actually transcend borders across other states in Asia and how it might be resisted by other states in the international community, including Australia, but also uh, other liberal democracies such as the United States. You know, it's useful to kind of look at some concrete examples. I think Emil has already brought up what is happening in the US, um, the way in which officials, whether they be uh, ICE agents or just police, have been collecting DNA samples. But across Asia, we see initiatives. Um, in India, for example, the Modi government introduced a bill last year that aimed at expanding the application of DNA-based uh, forensic technologies to assist the justice system. And many are concerned about potential misuses of that. We also know in Thailand that uh, Thai border authorities, including soldiers, uh, had forcibly taken DNA samples from minority Muslim Thai citizens that were returning back to Malaysia. I mentioned before the Kuwait proposal, but there's others out there in terms of Kenya. Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil has been ramping up a program to collect biometric data from its citizens, and there's some suggestion that DNA might be one component of that. These things are evolving before our eyes quite quickly and without a clear sense of guardrails of what the limits are uh, here. And again, China can lead the way in pushing those uh, guardrails out. But it's not just China. Of course, the United States, as, a, as another superpower, has also been pushing at those guardrails. And so uh, what really is needed is a kind of civil society bottom-up approach to this issue. And, and each of us had to take, I guess, individual responsibility, going back to what Emil was saying about, you know, where is your data being shared and what safeguards can you take as an individual citizen to ensure that, that you have control over, over your identity, over your information? Yeah. And just to build on that, I would say that one of the best safeguards or perhaps the most effective safeguard we have are civil society actors, opposition political parties and independent press or independent judiciary to push back against state or corporate attempts to collect, store, analyze, and share genomic information. And for this reason, I think it makes sense to look at what China's doing within the larger conversation around police violence that we've seen in the States and Canada and sure in Australia as well. And to really question, okay, what is the responsibility that civil society actors or otherwise concerned individuals have to push back against these trends? I think what makes the China case a little bit interesting and certainly challenging is that clearly China as an authoritarian state has done a quite a good job of silencing those voices that would otherwise be in a position to push back. So many times it lies with people outside of the country, whether Chinese citizens or non-Chinese citizens, to discuss and expose and these particular abuses and then to promote public discussion. 
But certainly in the case of uh, the countries that James mentioned, whether it's Brazil or Thailand or elsewhere, I think the best allies that people have are their fellow citizens who are concerned about the expansion of these kinds of programs in their communities. Okay, we might wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us, Emil, from Toronto, Canada. Thank you to you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me from just around the corner, I assume somewhere in level four lockdown, Melbourne. James, great to see you again, even if it is just virtually. Likewise, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are, as always, very appreciated. You can follow us all on Twitter. James is at jlybold, Emil is at Emil Dirks, and Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.